we're in week two of a new sermon series titled Better Than Ever. If you were gone last week, uh, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to that message. Uh, you can find it on our website. Just go to linwoodchurch.org. There's a media tab. You can click on that, and you can listen to the previous six weeks, I think, are on the, the main page there, and then we've got things grouped by sermon series, um, which is just a, a good resource for you if you miss a week or two, or if you hear something that you really want to share with somebody and say, hey, check this out. Uh, we make that available to you. But this is a series on the book of Hebrews, and I encouraged uh, you a couple of weeks ago to begin reading the book of Hebrews and watch for places where it says that Jesus is better than uh, something. And some of you have taken that challenge and sent me notes and sent me texts or, or hey, I've, I've found five or six, and somebody said, I think I've got eight. And, uh, and, and so we're going to be going through this series looking at things that Jesus is better than. And, uh, and it's specifically uh, how the new covenant that Jesus came to inaugurate, to initiate, to introduce to us and invite us into between God and all the peoples of the earth is better than the old covenant. And this new covenant uh, really is better than ever. So that was our bottom line last week, that Jesus really is better than ever. And the new covenant that he came to initiate is an unconditional covenant, and it's mediated by Christ, where the previous was covenant was sort of a, an I will if you will covenant between God and the nation of Israel. This is an unconditional covenant of God's love and grace to all who will receive it, to all who will come into the family of God through him. It's a better covenant with better promises and better parties involved, namely you and me uh, here in our context. But literally, this is good news for the whole World And when he brought that new covenant, he initiated a new movement. He initiated a new movement that didn't have 600 commandments. It didn't have 10 big commandments. It had one single commandment that Jesus gave right before he left, right before he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He called his disciples together, and he says, A new command I give you, love one another. And then he gave us the extent to which we love one another. He said, As I have loved you so also you are to love one another. And that one command drives us and propels us forward into this world to be emissaries and and initiators of love, to love one another as Christ has loved us. And we closed last week looking at Paul's words where he said that all these things of the law, they're meaningless compared to faith working itself out in love. That when we express our faith in Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sins, We do that by working that out, that faith out in love towards those around us. So that kind of catches you up, gives you the sort of the cliff notes, 30,000 foot view. Today we're going to dive into one of the specific things that Jesus is better than or superior to. Jesus is better than angels or superior to angels. So we're going to spend our time today focusing on the first couple of chapters of Hebrews and uh, the what that means. What does it mean that Jesus is better than angels, and how does that apply to our lives here today? Now, angels may or may not be a really big deal to you. Um, some people talk about guardian angels, and, and some people talk about, you know, or think about angels. Maybe you grew up in a tradition that actually prays to angels or, or something like that, but, but I would venture a guess that would say that most people in America, angels aren't as a big a deal to them as they were to a first century Hebrew. First century Hebrews, uh, which are the audience of this letter, angels were a really big deal. 
Angels had been, uh, throughout the Old Testament, they had been sort of uh, initiators of things. God spoke to people through angels. God visited people through angels. Think about the Christmas story that we were studying a few uh, months ago, that there were angels that came and visited the key people in that story, and they came as messengers of God, and they come and they do different things. In fact, there are about 300 references to angels in Scripture. And about half of them come in the Old Testament. That The angels are pretty active in the Old Testament. There are different types of angels that are referred to in the Old Testament. Of the roughly 150 that take place in the New Testament, about half of them come in the book of Revelation. And so angels play a big part in the big moves of God. We see angels all over the Christmas story. We see angels uh, all over the, the last times or the end times, and uh, their presence and activity is very, very significant in Israel's history, and it's very, very significant in the initiation and what will be the culmination of the Christian faith. And so when we talk about in angels, it's important to know a few things about them. They're higher than men. They're created in the created order. They're higher than men. We're told in Scripture that men were created a little lower than angels. So we know that they're higher than us, but we also know that they're lower than God, that they're not equal with God. And they're also uh, extremely powerful. That, that they're extremely numerous and they're extremely powerful. So those are a few things to know about angels. We'll get into a couple of others. But I would encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to open up your Bible to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. This is kind of where we started last week. We're going to start with that passage and then kind of finish uh, that passage or, or finish out uh, what it's talking about um, here in the first six verses. If you have one of our uh, blue hardcover. That was the word I was looking for. Hardcover Bibles. Uh, They're in the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those, open it up. Uh, The page numbers for the scriptures that we read together will be on the screens. And uh, I want to begin with verses 1 through 3 just as kind of a catch-up, and then we'll look at verses 4, 5, and 6 as well. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful world. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. We're going to stop right there. He continues to make this case. He continues to quote Old Testament scriptures that that validate the point that he is making that Jesus is better, superior to, greater than angels. And I want to focus on verse 4 and really kind of the tail end of verse 3 and then verse 4 because verse 4 starts with, So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, the so he became is referring to that last half of chapter, I'm sorry, of verse 3. And the last half of verse 3 says, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Sat down at the right hand of the Father. And that's significant because nobody sits in God's presence. 
Nobody sits in God's presence. Angels do not sit in God's presence. Angels stand at attention in God's presence. But Christ, through the finished work of the cross, when he had paid the penalty for our sins, preceding that by the perfect life that he lived, the perfect sinless life that he lived, paying the penalty for our sins, the work was finished. The last words he spoke was, it is finished. He went back up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And so doing, he became and, and, and shows just how much greater, how much superior to angels is the name that he has than theirs. Christ did what angels could not do. Christ did what angels could not do. He lived that fully human life, tempted in every way, Hebrews will tell us but also fully divine, God himself, God in Abad, as some pastors have said. And because he did what angels could not do, he offers to us a salvation that angels cannot offer. You see, angels serve God and serve Christ, and they minister to us on God and Christ's behalf. What does it mean to minister? To minister means to serve. So angels serve God and serve Christ by serving us, by carrying out their will, by carrying out their messages. But they have never died for us. There's no story in Scripture of an angel willingly giving their life for us. Angels did not do for us what Christ has done for us. So you might be wondering right now, what name did Christ receive that is so much greater than the name that any of the angels would have received? Well, verse 5 gives us a hint. He says, ask the question, sort of a rhetorical question, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. You see, son is the name given to Christ that is so much higher than the name ever given to any of the angels. Son is the name. Son as in not created one, but son as in only begotten one. You see, God created the angels, but God did not create Christ. Christ is the uncreated one present at the beginning of all things. All things, in fact, were created in him and through him and for him, we're told other places in Scripture. So the name that God gave Jesus, the name Son, is so much higher because the difference between something that is created and something that is begotten is huge. You can't overstate the difference and, and the difference in degree to which God, through Jesus being his only begotten son, is different than anything else that God has created. Now, I would venture a guess that you probably haven't used the word begotten in the last week. Anybody so bold to say, yeah, I use that word on a regular basis. It's part of my vocabulary. Unless you're quoting John 3.16 in one of the older versions, you probably haven't said it in a very long time. And so when we think about this word, it's important to understand what it means and how it's different than creating. Because to create, we create things that are other than ourselves. We create things that are other than ourselves, but we beget things that are of the same essence of ourselves. Allow me to illustrate. I have never been known to be a terribly handy person. I tell you, the only time I'm handy is at the end of my arms, right? It's a joke. It's what we call pastoral humor. You might have thought that was a, a contradiction of terms, but it's not. Um, but there was one time, maybe it's an inspired moment, where I was pretty handy. 
And I think maybe I recognized that I wasn't terribly handy and I didn't really know how to use very many tools. And uh, so when I was a, a junior in high school, I got inspired to take shop class, probably because I didn't want to take a real class like books and all that. I wanted to take a class where I would learn how to make things with my hands. So I took this woodworking class, and the first year, I made a chessboard with a cabinet underneath it with a drawer that pulled out. And I was pretty inspired uh, by Purple Heart, and so the dark pieces were Purple Heart word, which becomes darker and darker and richer shade of purple the longer uh, the longer it, it, it's out in the air and in the environment. And the light squares were made out of maple. And it worked out okay. I mean, it, it turned out pretty good. I got an A. So I thought, hey, maybe I'm, I'm becoming handy. And then the next year, I decided I'd like to turn a chess set on the lathe. And so the pieces that you see there are chess pieces. I didn't bring the whole thing in, but I was particularly pleased with the way that the bishops and the queens turned out. And I really enjoyed this project. I took pieces of of maple and purple heart and cut them real thin and laminated them together and then turned them on the lathe. And I I can sit down with those and I can show you the flaw in each and every piece. But most people look at it and they say, wow, that's really beautiful. And I'm pretty proud of this. I'll be honest with you. And I've kept pretty good track of it, you know, and kept an eye on it. But as pleased as I am with the way that this thing that I created turned out, maybe one of the best physical things that I've ever created, there is absolutely no comparison whatsoever with the four sons that I have begotten with my wife, Heather. This is one of my favorite pictures of them. They were playing in the snow in our backyard in Indiana. And it just expresses that joy that I have when I think about them. And the difference between creating and begetting can best be illustrated by the best thing that I've created and the best thing that I've begotten. And the difference between Christ, who was the only begotten of God, the same essence of God. When you look at Jesus, you see the Father. And when you look at my children, you can see my essence in them. You can see the blue eyes in three out of four of them. You can see the certain physical characteristics. You see mannerisms. If you ever want to know what I looked like at the age of 13, look at Keaton. We're almost a spitting image through life. We've been almost identical. And so there's a big difference between the things that are created and the things that are begotten. When Jesus was given the name God's Son, God's only begotten Son, that put him way above angels, way above angels. He's greater than angels. Verse 6, I want to I look at this and, and kind of build on this, and then we'll move into chapter 2. But verse 6 tells us very clearly that the angels worship him. When God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The angels worship Christ. At least that's what we've heard on high, right? We sing about this at Christmas time, that the angels were worshiping Christ when he came into the world. Not, not that Christ didn't exist prior to that, but, but when the event took place, when the long-awaited event took place and Jesus came into the world and, and they saw They worshipped. They worshipped Christ. In fact, last week we sang one of my new favorite worship songs. It's called, Oh, Praise the Name. And you might remember sort of the crescendo of the song in the third verse. When it comes back down, it says, Then on the third, at break of dawn, the Son of Heaven rose again. Oh, trampled death, where is your sting? The angels roar for Christ the King. Just as... They celebrated his coming into this world. 
I can't imagine the celebration in heaven for Christ as he resurrected from the dead, as he trampled sin and death forever. I love the imagery and just imagine that celebration in heaven. Because we're told that the whole place goes nuts just when one lost sinner repents, when one lost sinner comes back to him, that there's more celebration in heaven over that. In fact, later in the book of Hebrews, we'll read the words, if, you, if you've gotten through chapter 12, towards the end of chapter 12, verse 22, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, worshiping Christ, celebrating Him forever. We read about angels worshiping in Revelation. We read about angels worshiping in the, the vision that Isaiah had clear back in Isaiah chapter 6 that they're saying holy 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 is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come and then we read in Revelation 4 and 5 they're singing the same song they're praising God the God who was the God who is the God who is to come so we don't worship or pray to angels because Jesus is greater Jesus is superior too and we worship and we pray to him alone because he is the mediator of the new covenant not angels. We were created in Him and for Him and for His glory alone. Hebrews will refer to Him as the author and perfecter of our faith, the faith that initiates the work of God in us, the faith that He not only authors and brings into being, but that He perfects over time as we learn with Him and as we grow with Him. And so we were created in Him and for Him and for His glory. And I think that This distinction is made here for a very good reason, because we will always be tempted to worship created things rather than the Creator itself. We see this popping up all throughout the New Testament. It's very prevalent in Romans chapter 1 and other places where there's this warning. In fact, Hebrews gives us just such a warning. If we read the next couple of verses in the first uh, I'm sorry, the first couple of verses in chapter 2. I, didn't, I started to go through verse by verse for the rest of the chapter, and I just knew I'm going to go 45 minutes again if I do that. And uh, maybe that's not such a bad thing, but you can get a good study Bible or go online and, and read. I would encourage you to read the rest of chapter 1 and look at these things that are said about Jesus and how much greater, how much better than angels he is. But then in verse, or in verse 1 through 4 of chapter 2, I want you to turn there if you haven't already. Because this is sort of the application. I told you I was going to tell you what it means and how it applies. Well, this paragraph here gives us some insight into what it means that Jesus is better than angels and how it applies to our lives. He says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his word, or to his will. 
And so the, the writer of Hebrews includes five of these warning passages where he sort of makes application to the point that he's just made by issuing a warning or an exhortation or an encouragement to the people who were reading it and keeping in mind that the original audience for this was first century Jewish converts to Christianity who were being tempted to go back to the old way, to the old covenant. And so he's giving them this warning saying we must not neglect this salvation that has been revealed by Jesus himself. And you remember how he started this book in the first few verses of chapter 1? He says, in the past, God spoke to us in various times and various ways. One of those various ways was through angels. But now he's spoken to us through his Son. So we'd better pay attention. We had better not ignore it or neglect it. So it was an important warning to first century Jews who were tempted to turn back, who were tempted to go back to the Old Covenant. But it's also an important warning today for those who are tempted to refuse or to reject this great salvation that has been revealed to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And so this is a little uncomfortable if you're here today and you've heard the good news that Jesus Christ has come that you might have life and have it to the full through him and that you have to accept that gift of grace and you have to make a commitment to him to follow him and to grow in that. There's a warning in the passage here for you if you choose to reject that. You're rejecting the salvation that God has made available to you. We should take that very, very serious. But I think there's also a warning to believers today, and there's an application to us today who might be tempted to ignore or neglect or make light of the great salvation that's available to us and to sort of carelessly say, yeah, that's cool. I'm in for that. I'll raise my hand. And then live as if it didn't take place. Verse 3 tells us very clearly, verse 3, How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. That word, ignore, it's the word that means to neglect, to be careless with, or to dis. Regard, if we ignore such a great salvation, if we ignore the new covenant or exchange the beauty and the glory of the new covenant for elements of the old covenant, we should pay very close attention to this. In fact, the bottom line today is that Jesus is better and we better not neglect him. Jesus really is better, and what he brought to us really is better, and we better not neglect that. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. In the same breath as he says Jesus is so much superior to the angels, he's also saying that we better not neglect that. We better not neglect the salvation that he offers. You see, we have received a remarkable salvation directly from God himself through Jesus Christ in the new covenant. So my encouragement to you, wherever you are on the spectrum, is don't neglect it. Don't neglect it. Don't disregard it. Don't be careless with it. Because I know for a fact that if Satan cannot get you to refuse it or reject it outright, he will get you to neglect it or to disregard it through busyness and through, through indifference and discouragement and apathy. Don't let that happen. Don't let that be said of you. Don't let yourself drift away. Verse 1 says that the reason we have to pay more careful attention to what we have heard is so that we will not drift away. Later in the book of Hebrews, he refers to Christ as the anchor for our soul. So what does an anchor do? An anchor keeps the ship from drifting away. When you drop anchor, it 
anchors you to a specific point. And we don't want to neglect the salvation that Christ offers us. So we pursue him. We care for that salvation. We provide for it. We pay attention to it. We feed it. We feed it through God's word. We feed it through prayer. We feed it through the fellowship of the believers, the real fellowship, the the community that we experience together. We feed it through the apostles' teaching. We feed it through prayer. We feed it through coming to Christ's table and confessing our sins and being made right with him and experiencing fellowship with Christ himself. We fan it into flames, as Paul said to Timothy. We fan that into flames. We provide for it. We provide fuel for it. We provide oxygen for it. We don't starve it. We don't quench the spirit. We feed it. We let it flourish within us. So I want to encourage you to, to take the next step today. If there's something stirring up within you, if, if God's tapping you on the shoulder and saying, pay attention, or saying, it's time to take the next step. It's time to come to the next steps class and here in about a month when we meet together and share about what is happening at Linwood and how you can be a part of it. If it's to take the next step of baptism or take the next step of salvation or take the next step of getting involved in service or, or take the next step of pursuing him as a disciple in a new and a fresh way. Whatever the next step is for you today, my prayer is that you will respond in faith to that, that you'll make the commitment, that you'll keep growing, and that you'll go deeper. There is no retirement plan for Christians. We're continually growing in him. We're continually moving forward in him. We're continually taking new ground for the kingdom in our own lives and in the lives of those around us, the people that he gives us influence over, the things that he sets in front of us to do. Now about this time, when we talk about warning passages, somebody will usually want to know if Christians can lose their salvation. Anybody wondering about that? Like if there's a warning in the Bible, does that mean that Christians can lose their salvation? Now the Wesleyans or the Arminians or the holiness movement say, yes, you can, based on many passages in Scripture, several of them right here in the book of Hebrews. And the Calvinists or the Reformed side would say, no, you can't. Once you're in, you're in. You can't lose it. And they base that on many passages of Scripture. And so, I want to submit to you that it's the wrong question altogether. It's the wrong question. The right question is, how can I be sure? How can I be sure? Put my faith in Jesus Christ, 100%. And I think Peter might have gotten asked this question a number of times between the time that he wrote 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And so I want to turn to first, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, and I want to ask you to read this passage with me as we prepare to close, because I think it answers the question from both sides, from both sides. And this is what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, page 1893. He says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us very great and precious promises. That's the the new covenant. So that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That's the pursuit of holiness. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly love, or brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
But if anyone does not have them, he's nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed of his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fail. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So whichever side you fall on the spectrum of yes, you can or no, you can't, Peter addresses both right here. And he basically says, work like an Arminian. Work like you can lose it. Keep adding to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge brotherly love and to brotherly love Love for all. Keep adding to that. Keep working for it. Do what you can to make your calling and election sure. But to those who say you can't, he's talking about calling. He's talking about election. He's saying you've been cleansed from your past sins. And so I think that the key here is to stop confusing faith that says, I can't do anything. I have to put all my faith in Jesus Christ. You see, faith is not opposed to works. It's opposed to earning. You will never earn your salvation. But you can work to add to it. You can work to increase it. You can work to not neglect the great salvation that Jesus Christ has made available to you. His word is clear. We are to continue pursuing him, continue pursuing the holy life, continue living for him and growing in our faith and growing in our desire for him and growing in our love for him and for others. And that's what I want to encourage you to today. However you choose to respond to this message, my hope and my prayer is that you will respond in faith, that you will lean into God, that you will ask him what he is asking of you, and that you will say yes and amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you and praise you for the great salvation that you have extended to us. We thank you, God, that you are greater than anything in the created world. Anything, whether visible or invisible, you are high above it all. And yet you humbled yourself and you came. You came and lived a perfect sinless life and died a horrible death. And you did it for us. You did it that we might believe, that we might receive, that we might become brothers and sisters, children of God. And so, Lord, we, we look to you and we pray, God, help us. Help us to respond in faith. Help us to fan into flames the spark that is in us. Help us to learn and to grow and to become all that you would have us to be. Help us, O oh God, to accomplish your purposes in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. You're